our series in Esther today. If you want to find the Bible and find Esther 2. I'm so glad we're worshiping together today. What a gift. What a privilege. I know it's been said like four times already, but happy Father's Day. I'm glad you're here. I know that Father's Day in days like this are complex days where sometimes we are celebrating and thinking about the people that we get to be with and the gift of wonderful relationships. And sometimes we are mixing that with mourning the people that aren't relationships that aren't what we hope they are. I know that days like this for a lot of us are a mixed bag. And so and if that's you today, thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing to worship and celebrate. What I love about Father's Day, besides just the fact that I love my dad and I love that I get to be a dad, is I love that we have a good father and that everything that is beautiful about fatherhood and about masculinity, everything that's good in those things is expressed in our Jesus. And that regardless of how good or poor, how close or distant your earthly father is, and how good a job they did of declaring the truth of our real fathers, you, you and I, stand here today as children. today, but we're actually going to talk, we're going to see a little bit of God's heart and the Father today, I think it's going to be good. So read this with me, and then we'll pray and continue on. Esther 2, starting in verse 19, we are, guys, we're past the part where I have to shout sex slave over the, the loudspeaker in the part, we're, we're past that part of the story. So, just that's, I don't know if that's as good for you as it is for me, but I'm glad to be there. Uh, Esther 2, 7, verse 19 says, When the virgins, well, there it is. We're back here. <laughs> we're gathered together the second time. Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on the king, on king Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king the name of Mordecai, and when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And this is the word of the Lord for us today. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, we need you this morning. We ask that you would make yourself known as we take a few minutes to investigate the text, to, to learn this story, to hear your heart for your people. We ask that you would be our disciple, that you would illuminate the text, that you would teach us today, that you would be our pastor, and that we would all leave here this morning having spent our morning with you, Jesus. You were so good. You were so good. Help us to hear that today. Help us to know that today. Help us to experience that in our hearts and our persons today. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So what are we going to do with this text today? This is a, 
a shorter little chunk of Esther than we've talked about the first couple of weeks, right? Like this scene in Esther goes by pretty quick. And so I think what we're going to do is we're going to put this within the larger story of Esther. I'm going to point out, honestly, just a couple little historical elements, cultural elements that I think will illuminate it for us. I think that's going to wrap us around to what God has for us in this text pretty quickly. I think, I think it's just something we're, we're going to get to uh, pretty fast once we kind of have eyes on it. That's going to lead us to some teaching from James and specifically some teaching from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we'll end our time in with communion. So let's put this in a larger story of Esther just to kind of remember where we've been. The story up to this point, King Xerxes of Persia banished his queen from his presence for publicly shaming him and by refusing to answer his summons. After a disastrous military defeat, the king decided to play some political spin by finding a new queen. He had young women from all over the kingdom brought to him and added to his hair. Well, okay, you gotta save him. And out of all of them, he chose a young Jewish orphan who was hiding her Jewish identity, named Esther. And Esther was crowned queen of Persia to rule alongside Ahasuerus or Xerxes. Our text picks up in the midst of all this transition. And we find out a little more about Esther's adoptive father, Mordecai. We find out that he sits at the king's gate. This means that he was a sort of court official. When I say court official, think, think literal court of law, to kind of use modern terminology. Mordecai was probably the ancient equivalent to what we would think of as like a local judge. Now, we don't know how he got this position, but most likely, Queen Esther saw his appointment. I mean, this would have been the perfect sort of appointment for her father. Nice enough to give him an honored position and to give him a secure salary for life, but discreet enough to not really draw attention to their relationship and potentially expose her ethnic identity and kind of blow her cover. We also learn in our story that Esther still sees herself as under the authority of her father. Now, this is both important to our story and strange. Jewish folk in this day were passionate about the patriarchal authority and specifically how it worked out in their covenant with God and their covenant of marriage. It was part of how they understood their identity. Think of Genesis 2.24 when it talks about the first marriage. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Something about marriage, according to the Jewish understanding and the scriptural understanding, was supposed to sever the authority of the father over his children. And when that new family was formed, a new authority structure was set in place. But Esther bucks against this. It says, Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. And we don't know why she chooses to do this. We don't know if this is because of her Jewish commitments and the reality of her husband's just kind of pagan nature. We don't know if this had to be some, or this was some sort of extended sense of loyalty to Mordecai for adopting her. We don't know if this was just an expression of her love for her father. The text just doesn't tell us. But it is important to note this because this is the first hint the whole book and the story gives us of Esther's character and of the transformation that we're going to see in her. See, we talked about this last week, right? But up until this point, the story really shows that the life kind of just seems to be happening to Esther. But here, 
in this little line, we get this picture of Esther's agency. Her choice to remain obedient to Mordecai on the surface to us, right? Like, it might just kind of seem like more subservience, right? But, but it's important to note, it's her choice. It's her agency. She chose to remain loyal, connected, and obedient to her father. And as we will see, this is vitally important to the larger story of Esther. But that really is like, that's the larger story, right? That's some of those thematic Esther things that we need to keep in our head as we move through the story as a whole. So, so keep that one in your back pocket. What our text today really does for us right now is it sets up some really important stuff with our understanding of Mordecai. We're introduced to his role as a court official. Because of this, he spends a lot of time in a justice building called the King's Gate. Like, it's still there in the ruins of Susa. You can go explore it, but I think that's an area. So you probably don't want to go explore it, actually. But it is there. You can Google You can Google it. Um, he spends a lot of time there, but he also would have spent a lot of time in the actual palace. And in the course of his duties, Mordecai becomes aware of a plot to kill the king by two of his guards. These two guys, Bictham and Teresh, they're the eunuchs who, eunuchs who guard the king's bedroom. These are his closest bodyguards. They're amongst a group of elite Persian soldiers called the Immortals, which is pretty brutal if you're going to name your special forces the Immortals. Um, they're not actually immortal, by the way. A ton of them died. I think all of them died at this point. It's been a while. <laughs> I meant in combat, but anyway, you get what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> these two guys, these are the closest bodyguards to the king. They literally guard the door to his bedroom while he sleeps. If anyone is going to be able to successfully assassinate the king, it's going to be these guys. And by the way, a decade later, the plot that actually ends Xerxes' life involves the two bodyguards who guard his door as well as his queen. So the, the dude makes bad choices about who he hangs out with. But these two guys, they're disgruntled with the king, and, and if you've been, if you've been thinking about the story, like that makes a ton of sense. If these guys are actually part of that elite group of the immortals, like there's a good chance that they were a part of Xerxes' disastrous campaign against Greece. Uh, in which most of the immortals were killed in battle uh, because of bad leadership decisions on the battlefield. And so it makes sense that these guys would return home from that and see all the king's opulence and all his wealth and all the comforts he lives in, and they would be a little upset with his leadership in general. Mordecai learns about this and decides to turn the guys in. Now, this may seem a little strange, but Mordecai reports the assassination plot through Esther instead of just speaking out for himself. The, the reasons here are actually pretty interesting. Coups and regime changes weren't really all that uncommon in this world. And historically, we have a good amount of evidence of stories preserved of rookie heroes attempting to speak up for kings. Uh, but it turns out the officials they spoke up to were in on the plot, and uh, things didn't go well for them. See, this is the problem, right? So few people have the ear of the king. And so if you want to speak up to save the king's life, then you've got to tell your boss who tells his boss who tells his boss who tells his boss who tells the king. And if anyone in that chain is in on the plot, uh, it's not going to go well for you, right? So Mordecai knows, right, that like he could go tell his boss in, in a good heart to save the king, and he could just end up dead, and the king would still end up dead, and it wouldn't accomplish anything. But Mordecai has connections. 
So he goes straight to Queen Esther. Well, he actually can't even go to her directly, but this is another example of God's providence. Esther has this group of servants who have found faith, she's found favor with, and they're incredibly loyal. And so Mordecai is able to communicate this plot through Esther's servants to Esther to the king. She reports it to the king in the name of Mordecai. He investigates it, finds out it's true, and then has him killed. And the story basically ends there. It ends out with this little piece, right, of going, and then it was recorded in the chronicles of the king and in the presence of the king. Like, this got written down. And it would be easy for us to kind of skip past that part. It just kind of seems like the little flavor texts are going to move from one scene to another. But it's actually pretty important. We have to, we have to remember the whole honor-shame dynamic going on in this story. Well, one of the ways the king furthers his own honor and glory is through his generosity. The king was extremely generous to those who did right by him. Exposing an assassination attempt is doing right by the king, right? Like, this should have gained Mordecai instant wealth, fame, and rewards. But according to the story, he gets nothing. For whatever reason, right? The big surprise, the story doesn't tell us why. Like, we don't know if if he was just shocked by the sheer amount of treason in the house and having to clean up the house, we don't know. But for whatever reason, Xerxes doesn't reward Mordecai. The story just moves on. And in fact, we'll see next week that the king actually rewards and promotes a totally different guy who is completely uninvolved in the effort to save his life. Now, we'll save that little piece of like juicy drama for next week. But for our purposes today... We can take a moment to see that Mordecai chooses to stick his neck out there to save the pagan king, and he gets squat in return. And that's it. So what do we do with this text, right? Like, how does that work its way forward to 2020 to the church right now? One of our most important tasks when interpreting the Old Testament is understanding that the whole of the Bible is the story of the gospel. We find some way to say this literally every week, but beloved of Jesus, like, hear me, this is our thing. This is the most important thing I can say that we can talk about, that we can celebrate. And that's that God made everything, and he made everything perfect and made it for relationship with him. But sin broke that relationship and doomed us and doomed the creation to eternity separate from our creator and separate from our design. God promised that he would fix what we broke in sin, and that promise was fulfilled in the solution, which is the man, Jesus of Nazareth. He was born on this planet, lived a perfect life, died an unjust death for the sin of the world, rose from the dead by the power of the Spirit, ascended into heaven where he reigns on his throne to this day, and someday he will return for the final judgment and create heaven on earth, heaven on earth here and now. Guys, this is the story of the scripture. This is the story of the gospel. This is the story of humanity. This is, this is what we're doing. And what you notice in that story is that Jesus is the focal point. It all comes back to Jesus. And if the Bible is the story of the gospel, then we can trust that all of the scripture, whether we're talking about New Testament gospels and literally telling stories of Jesus, or New Testament letters to churches that were worshiping Jesus, or Old Testament law documents and ancient prophecies, they are all pointing to Jesus. So when we study 
Old Testament texts like Esther, we always have to be asking how this text illuminates the gospel. How does it point to the gospel? Do we see prophecies of Jesus? Do we see promises of God of the coming of Jesus? How does the text point us to Jesus? When we get into historical texts like Esther, most often what we'll see are these foreshadows of the ministry of Christ. We'll see something in the heart and the actions of the characters that, that, that the Holy Spirit supernaturally preserved that just points us to Jesus' heart and Jesus' ministry and Jesus' actions. The same is true here in Esther. We'll see aspects of Esther and Mordecai, their character and their actions, that just point us to Christ. Not that these characters in the Old Testament are Christ, but they're, they're people, and they're inconsistent, and they're full of sin. And there's one text where Mordecai will remind us of Jesus, and there's another one where he'll remind us of us and our, and our own sin. But it's important for us, important for us to allow the text preserved for us by the Holy Spirit to point us to Christ. So what I want to do today is point out one specific aspect this kind of typing of Christ, this foreshadowing of Christ, I think it's going to get us to a cool place to God has for us today. And that's this. Mordecai saves the king. But what we really should be asking is, why? Why would Mordecai save this king? I mean, Xerxes is not exactly a great guy. He hasn't exactly been great for Persia or Mordecai's own family. I mean, he led the empire into a disastrous military defeat, and he took away Mordecai's daughter, who he, by the way, will never have one-on-one -on -one time ever again for the rest of his life. <coughs> He's a blasphemous pagan who, who lives this extravagant, lavish, sinful lifestyle. He's violent and evil. Taking the king's actual character out of it, by the way, like that's just like, wow, Xerxes is awful. Mordecai has to risk his own life to even do this. I mean, he has no way of knowing how deep this plot is. If, if he, he may step into this and make things significantly worse for himself. And, and, and even beyond that, look at the end of the whole thing. Mordecai doesn't get anything out of it. He, he puts his neck out there for the purpose of saving this unworthy of saving pagan king, and he seemingly gets nothing out of the deal. So we really should step back and ask, why did Mordecai do this? Now, we talked several times about the reality that, that Esther's not really interested in telling you why. Right? But, but in, this, in this case, like, we're only left with a couple options. The reality is, Mordecai did this, he saved the king, because it was the right thing to do. Yeah, he, he might have thought he'd get a reward. He also was like just as likely to just get killed. He did it because he was a Jewish man, and that's what you do. He's a Jewish man living in exile. And this is part of the life of the exiled Jew. The prophets spoke and commanded over the exiled Jewish nation and told them to be for their oppressors. 
You know, in Jeremiah 29, the prophet commands the exiled people to seek the welfare of their city. This is the standing orders for God's exiled people, that they would bless their community. That they were to do right by their pagan oppressors. And Mordecai follows right in this vein. He does right by his city and right by his nation and right by his king, even when they are oppressing him, even when they are blasphemous pagans, he does right. He doesn't get anything out of it. I mean, look at this story. Like, it's a total breach of etiquette that Mordecai received nothing for saving the king, but he does it anyway. Mordecai could have sat on his butt and not gotten involved. I mean, after all, right? Like, was this was this really his problem? Esther wasn't in any real danger in a coup. She, she most likely would have just been sent home. And in the worst case scenario, she probably would have just been added to the harem of the new king. And, and remember, right? Like, Xerxes is a terrible person. But Mordecai does the right thing. But no one's looking. When it actually costs him real risk, and when he gets no reward. No one would have known about Mordecai's inaction except Mordecai and God. If he chose not to speak up, nobody would have known except him and God. He could have just as easily have been killed as praised. In this, Beloved, Mordecai paints this beautiful picture of Jesus' love and sacrifice for us. I mean, is this not so similar to how Jesus loves us and treats us? Jesus put himself out there for us in spite of us, in spite of how undeserving we are of the effort. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2, it says this, you can look this up if you want to. This is starting in the first verse of the second chapter of the letter of Ephesians. Read this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, this is verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And, and, he, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that the coming of ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift from God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see this? Sin left us dead with nothing to offer. 
right? Like, we, we are so like King Xerxes, bathing in our own glory, not aware of the death that's crouching our bedroom door. But praise be to God that Jesus was not content to sit by and watch our self-destruction. He, he interjected himself on our behalf. He, he suffered great loss on our behalf. And the prize he gets on the other side, the, 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 the God-shaped, the God-sized prize that he deserves for the God-sized sacrifice and, and love he made, the prize he gets on the other side is us. And I'm not saying that to you guys. You're pretty great. I wouldn't say that's a God-sized prize. I don't feel like that really matches the effort and sacrifice put in. But praise be to God that you and I have a better Mordecai in our life. Just as Mordecai loved an orphan as his daughter, Jesus loves us and made us his children. Just as Mordecai put his neck out there for an undeserving pagan king, Jesus put himself on the cross for you and for me. Jesus is a better Mordecai. And so you and I, through the power of the Spirit, by the grace that we have received, are invited to be a better service. Look how that Ephesians text ends. God saved us. But, but, but he saved us like by his own grace, by his own love, but he saved us to the good works of the kingdom. You see, Xerxes gets this amazing gift from Mordecai, and he fails to respond to it. We have received a better gift from Jesus. Let us not forget to respond as King Xerxes forgot to respond. We can, we, through the power of the Spirit, by the grace of God, we can further the blessing by which we've been blessed. We are invited to live in this world with the, the kind of sacrificial love that Jesus lived in this world. We can live in our world here and now by the power of Jesus, seeking what is right and what is good, regardless of who sees it or what we get out of it. We can be a part of the kingdom work in this world simply because God delights in that good. We don't have to be rewarded. We don't have to be acknowledged. Beyond this, we can... We can be a part of the kingdom good in this world, even when it's risky, even when it costs us something, even when it's painful, because Jesus did it first. So the gospel changes us, but the gospel also challenges us. It calls us up. It calls us to be a part of the very work that Jesus did on our behalf. You know, in James' letter to the church in chapter 4, he says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the Mordecai dilemma. No one would know, except Mordecai and God. And that was enough for him to act. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We should be challenged by 
the work of Jesus on our behalf. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. We have received salvation. It is secure. And we see in the text that, that in that salvation, in that work, that God has set aside good works for us to be a part of. Not to receive our salvation, but to participate in the work of the kingdom. To, to go into this world and do good. I know that's like the most vague, general thing I can say, but hear that. Like, you are a part of the kingdom of God. You have been saved by the power and sacrifice of Jesus and empowered with his Holy Spirit, and you are called to be a part of this kingdom work, to go into this world that is dead and dying and lost, and be the voice, the hands, the feet, the work, the love of Jesus in this world. To go and to cook, to do the right thing, to do the kingdom thing, to seek the good of our nation, the welfare of our people, the good of our city, here and now, even when it costs you something, even when no one is looking, even when it seems like you get nothing out of it. Because that's the real issue, right? If we're honest, most of us have no problem doing hard things when we know there's a good return on investment. But the challenge of Jesus, the challenge of this story of this Jewish man in exile is that we pursue the sorts of kingdom good in our world that, that God loves for, for no other reason than it delights our God and it is good. Think on that for a moment. When we, when we choose to sacrifice ourselves for the good of the world around us. We have, we have no clue what God may be doing. Guys, like, I'm not saying this to be, to be mean to you, but you're just not big enough or smart enough to really calculate the odds on the return on investment for your kingdom work. You're just not. God has bigger and better perspectives for you. Think about our story for a moment. The whole book of Esther is the story of God's sovereignty working out in providence for his people. That God is working behind the scenes to preserve his people and further his kingdom work in the world. But our story is about a Jewish man who risks a lot to do the right thing and gets nothing for And yet, look at God's providence in that. In just a few short chapters, that unrewarded good work will be a pivot point in the entire story of God working to save and preserve his people. Work has no way of understanding that. He has no way of seeing that. And yet God is in that. This is God's providential hand. Without this unrewarded good deed, the rest of the dominoes of the book of Esther just don't fall the right way. What an amazing God we serve. What an amazing God we serve. He is sovereign. He reigns. He works through all things. And in that sense, our good works, no matter how unseen they are, no matter how risky they are, no matter how unrewarded they are, they are never wasted. Because the God who saved us sees us. 
down to ultimately. He is the one we are saying. So, beloved, let's go and have truth today. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to give some space for us to respond. We're going to sing another song. We're going to take communion at the end like we do. But I just want to encourage you guys. Maybe you can sing loud and engage in the song if you want to. But I want to encourage you to sit in that truth for me. There's a lot of stuff in this world sitting in front of you. A lot of opportunities, a lot of work, a lot of injustice, a lot of kingdom things exist in this world, exist in your story, in your sphere of influence right now. And you are challenged by the power and work of God in your life to participate in those things. And then you hear this word. We serve and we sacrifice and we pour ourselves out at the pleasure of our God. Because he delights in it. Because we get to do that. We get to do that trusting that his sovereign providence will never be ourselves. Jesus, we take a few minutes to reflect on this. We just ask that you would give us eyes like you have. Eyes to see your love. Guys, give us Give us eyes to see your love for us. But give us eyes to see your love for this world. Give us eyes to see your sovereign hand working through this world, working through even the sinful choices of others, even through the curse, that in your power, in your sovereignty, in your love, you are still working for the good, working for the advancement of your kingdom. Give us your eyes and your perspective. And we might leave this place and scatter out into our neighborhoods and our spheres of influence and our places of work and our circles of friends and we might be your hands and feet. Jesus, I want to love like you love. I want to serve like you serve. I want to pour out like you pour out. Not because I'm trying to build myself up or gain something or prove myself to be a certain level of spiritual or, or gain even your approval. But God, I just want to do it because it delights you. And make that, make that the actual cry of my heart. Make it the cry of our hearts. To respond challenge to be a part of your kingdom work. Because we can. Because we get to. Because you're delighted in it. God, change this world. May your will in heaven be here on earth through this church and through this community and through us. We love you. Praise the Lord. Amen. Mm-hmm.